Good morning, members and friends of AASLH. I'm John Dickville, the president and CEO of ASLH. And I know there are people still coming into the room, but we, we need to get started because we have a, a big cast of characters. We, we have introducers to introduce introducers before we get to our panel. Um, and we all have something to say. Uh, so I will make mine quick, I hope. So this opening plenary has us diving right into the question, you know, if we're gonna do inclusive, relevant work, what are we waiting for? So this is the perfect panel to, to really start the conference with. Um, and with that in mind, something else I need to do is announce a new, uh, I guess, program, publication of AASLH along with our partners at the National Council on Public History. We are launching the Inclusive Historian's Handbook, which is an online reference guide. It's meant to be for practitioners, people in the field, but also uh, people outside the field, people doing history work or, or related humanities work, um, wanting to do it in an inclusive way. It's a website that we are launching at this moment. Uh, it is inclusivehistorian.com. You can look at it right now if you want. Uh, the editors and the advisory board members of the project will be sitting at the ASLH table throughout the conference answering questions about it. They're also doing a conversation in the conversation space, which is right outside here next to registration. There are a series of conversations happening there scheduled through the conference, and they have one scheduled for uh, Saturday morning at 10 if you'd like to learn more about the Inclusive Historian's Handbook. Uh, so my, my real job is to introduce the first introducer, uh, who comes to us from the International Sites of Conscience. The International Sites of Conscience, as I think most of you know, is an incredibly dynamic, fast-growing organization that has changed the field. Um, we are all, wherever we work, history institutions, history organizations across the country and around the world, we're learning from our colleagues at the Sites of Conscience. Um, and we have with us today the director of the International Sites of Conscience, Liz Silks, who will come up here in just, just a moment. Um, and I wanted to say that we are partnering at this annual meeting with the International Sites of Conscience, and you'll notice an extra level of energy, um, a real variety of sessions and programs, thanks to the, the sites' participation. Um, and we're excited to have only, not only staff members from the sites, but also some of their uh, colleagues and, and volunteers from around the world are here as fellows uh, participating in the program. And six years ago, we met jointly in Birmingham, Alabama, and six years ago, the sites had, I think, 185 member institutions. Today, they're at 275 plus, um, which is, if you do the math, and I did the math, is a 50% growth in, in six years. Uh, which says a lot about the direction that Liz has been leading the organization. So with that, I will turn the podium over to Liz Silks. Thank you, John, and good morning, everyone. The International Coalition of Sites of Conscience is honored to be co-hosting this annual meeting and to work alongside ASLH all year long. Our organizations share a fundamental belief that history not only shapes the present, but it can inform us, move us, even anger us. History at its best can make us act, inspire us to forge a more just and humane future. 
At the coalition, our members include over 275 historic sites, museums, and memory initiatives in 65 countries. They range from well-known museums, such as Ellis Island in New York and Constitution Hill in Johannesburg, to lesser-known killing fields in Cambodia and former sites of torture and detention in the Middle East. No matter their size, however, sites of conscience each have a story to tell, a story that can catalyze a very different future, one of truth and justice, dignity and respect, and perhaps even greater than their having a story to tell, sites of conscience have a commitment to sharing it. This is no insignificant act in today's world, at a time when many of those in positions of power and influence have made the distortion of facts and the rewriting of history acceptable, and in fact, in many ways, mainstream. The people who confront the past with honesty and transparency are those we need the most. It has been said that history is written by the victors, but sites of conscience tell the stories of victims and survivors, the marginalized and excluded, as we know that it is only in that telling, in those truths, that we can build a rights-based future. Through grants, truth and justice initiatives, networking opportunities and trainings, the Coalition of Sites of Conscience works hand-in-hand -hand with our members across the globe. Like our friends at AASLH, the Coalition is a connector. We believe that activism based in history must come from the ground up through organizations and individuals like each and every one of you in this room. We use this approach to truth-telling, healing, and reconciliation in some of the most historically divided communities in the world. In Colombia, war has claimed the lives of 200,000 people. The coalition is helping survivors to collect and share their stories of the war, while we're also advising that country's Truth Commission on the best tools for accessing and documenting those stories as an integral step in the pursuit of justice and lasting peace. We're also on the ground in Sri Lanka, where continued ethnic tension led to the killings of over 250 people earlier this year. We're bringing together survivors from both sides of that long-standing conflict there through memorialization projects that support personal healing and begin to bridge ethnic divides. At the coalition, we don't work in silos. Our goal is to create a learning community we share activity plans, program models, and lessons learned with member sites across the globe, including those here in North America, where we help enhance the capacity of members and non-members alike to share history in transformational new ways. As only one example, Sarah Ferron, our Senior Director of Methodology and Practice, consulted on, woo, you welcome to applaud Sarah. <laughs> She consulted on Eastern State Penitentiary's Prisons Today exhibit, which many of you have visited and I hope will visit this evening. This remarkable exhibit helps visitors understand and rethink their relationship to the history and contemporary truths of incarceration in this country, breaking down barriers between us and them, a task of supreme importance in this country today. It is also emblematic of what sites of conscience all over the world do best. Help us look inward and ask essential questions. What haven't we learned about this history? 
Whose story is missing? What can we do about it? It is only through this exploration that we can activate history as a catalyst for a different future. Today it is my honor to help introduce this plenary session on incarceration and public history, and specifically Jackie Barton, Program Manager of the ARCUS Leadership Program, which serves em emerging leaders in the historic preservation and cultural resource fields. Jackie also runs Birchwood Planning, a consulting firm focused on strategy, engagement, and storytelling. As a leadership team member with the Ohio History Connection, Jackie brought Ohio one of the country's first and largest history-themed AmeriCorps programs. Before that, as a consultant with Mary Means and Associates, she provided historic preservation, heritage tourism, and economic development planning to communities. Her projects there included the Arlington Historic Preservation Plan, the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Federal Scenic Byway, and the heart of the Civil War heritage area, as well as the statewide heritage tourism plan for Colorado. Jackie is the program chair for ASLH for 2019 and was a History Leadership Institute 2010 graduate. With that, it is my great honor to introduce Jackie Barton. Good morning. Thank you for being here bright and early, and thank you for coming to the 2019 annual meeting. We are all collectively AASLH, all of us, and this is our homecoming event. This year we have the most attendees in 20 years, and it's good to be together. Yeah, you can clap for that if you want. You can give a little, um, even this early in the morning. If anybody wants to do a victory lap, we'll do that at noon. Um, thank you. I want to say thank you to those who worked on making this program sparkle. I know we do this every year, but I think it's really important to do it because the amount of work that goes into this program each year is absolutely astonishing. Um, if you are one of these people, please either stand up or if it's more comfortable, raise your hand. The 2019 Program Committee, if you're a Program Committee member, raise your hand or stand up. Uh, the 2019 host committee, these folks uh, are the ones who rolled out the carpet here in Philadelphia. The International Sites of Conscience, our partners here. Thank you. Uh, I want to especially thank Sarah Farron and Linda Norris who worked hard on the theme with us uh, in those early program calls. The ASL staff, these folks work so hard. and. Um, Often our interactions with them are things like, where is this room? Where can I find water? We're out of coffee. Um, and I also wanna just personally make a shout out to Richard Josie. I'm not gonna ask if he's here in case he's not, because um, nobody wants to you know, be called out if they didn't make it this morning. But uh, he was uh, personally a DNI advisor for some things as we worked on our theme this year. And I just wanna say thank you for that. So. So before I introduce another introducer, I just want to take a moment this morning to talk about why the opening plenary for a public history conference is focused not just on the history of incarceration, but on the now of incarceration. Some of you are wondering about that, and some of you are wondering what we've been waiting for. Well, perhaps we've been waiting for it to be comfortable or clear that all of our sites and museums are ready for the work of contemporary issues. I don't know. 
But I do know that the blinking lights of this information age have illuminated data and stories about what ails our country and our communities. And it's not just data and information, it's actually tomorrow's history. And it's part of the continuum of past actions and inaction as well. Thus, each site and museum among us will make choices regarding where to engage in its history mission in the work of now and how to engage, if at all. Today's plenary gives you one such example of that engagement and in that conversation. Sean Kelly has called mass incarceration the human and civil rights issue for our generation. You'll hear a conversation today that will be enriching and a learning experience. And then tonight you'll get a chance at the event generously sponsored by the First Division Museum at Cantini Park. Uh, thank you very much to keep tickets affordable to kind of see that engagement in action at one site. And I hope that you'll be enriched yourself and that you'll walk away if mass incarceration isn't the particular now that works at your side or that makes um, sense with your history mission to think about what is the now facing your community that fits with your history mission and that might relate to your site's story. So Bill is going to introduce our speakers today and Bill is fabulous. Bill is the co-chair of the host committee and will be introducing our guests. He's the director of exhibitions and public programs at the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage. And the, um, he, I wanna say, was a voice for creativity and entrepreneurial spirit through this whole process and really pushed us. There were times we would say, well, this doesn't work that well, or maybe we haven't done it this way. And he would say, well, I just don't care that we haven't done it that way or that it's hard. Let's try it anyways. And I think that that was really helpful. He taught in the education departments at Penn Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, at the Philadelphia History Museum and the Institution of Contemporary Art, and he was the founding director of education and community outreach at the Rosenbach Museum. He's also served on the board of directors for AFLH. Bill Adair. Adair. Good morning, everyone. Smile, by the way, you're on camera. Uh, C-SPAN is recording this event. So we're famous. So on behalf of your host committee, I say welcome to Philly. America's greatest and grittiest city, as we like to say. A city of brotherly love, sisterly affections, and a lot of really amazing food. So uh, we hope you will participate in all of that this week. We've had a really fantastic time putting this conference together for you, thinking really hard about what a meaningful annual meeting slash conference looks like in 2019. Um, the team, the host committee team has been amazing. The list of the host committee is in your program book. Please seek us out and talk to us. Um, we're anxious to learn from you, to hear from you. Um, and we're super grateful to have uh, nearly record attendance here. Um, and it's going to be a super productive, amazing couple of days. I have to take my glasses off to see here. Um, we'd like for you to visit us, um, if you can, at the host committee booth, which is just outside the exhibition hall. This is not ye old host committee booth. Um, we have uh, developed a number of pop-up programs for you at the booth today and tomorrow 
to introduce you to really awesome um, programs in public history that are happening here in Philly and some really amazing people that are putting those together. There are um, some schedules down here. There are schedules and a sign at the host committee booth. So please join us for um, informal gatherings and informative exchange of ideas. And just come by to say hi, please. All right, and now for our speakers. Susan Burton is the founder of A Way of Life Reentry Project, an organization in South Los Angeles that provides housing, employment assistance, legal services, and leadership development to women who are rebuilding their lives after incarceration. Having cycled in and out of prison for nearly two decades after the tragic death of her five-year-old son led to drug addiction, Susan believed that if women had access to support and resources, they would be able to thrive. Susan believes that if women have access to support and resources, they will be able to thrive, and they will not return to prison. Since its founding in 1998, a new way of life has provided housing and hope to more than 1,100 formerly incarcerated women and helped reunite over 300 women with their children, while the organization's reentry legal clinic has provided pro bono legal services to more than 3,000 community members with conviction histories. Talitha LaFloria is the Lisa Smith Discovery Associate Professor of African and African American Studies at the Carter G. Woodson Institute at the University of Virginia and the founding director of the Public Voices Fellowship. Dr. LaFloria is a nationally recognized historian and a leading expert on black women and mass incarceration. She's the author of the multi-award winning Chained in Silence, Black Women in Convict Labor in the New South, which has received six prizes uh, from the OAH, the Association of Black Women Historians, um, the Charles Wright Museum of African American History, and more. She is currently finishing her second single authored monograph, The Search for Jane Crow, Black Women and Mass Incarceration. In addition to her scholarly publications, Professor LaFloria also writes for popular media outlets. I'm sure you've seen her work in The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Root, The Huffington Post, The Nation, and others. She serves as an historical consultant for several nonprofit organizations and is particularly committed to organizations that serve formerly incarcerated women transitioning back into full citizenship. And our local hero, Sean Kelly, um, has run all programs and exhibits at Eastern State Penitentiary since 1995. Is that all, Sean? <laughs> when he was hired as the site's first full-time employee. He produces the site's signature, he has produced the site's signature audio tour and has curated more than 100 artist installations at the site, including one that you will see tonight, um, which is incredibly beautiful and meaningful. He oversaw the development of Prisons Today, Questions in the Age of Mass Incarceration, the exhibition that you will also see tonight, which won the American Alliance of Museums 2017 overall award for excellence. He has been active in visiting prisons and writes critically about museums and social justice and is one of the most inspiring and active people in the public history field. Um, so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, our speakers, welcome. Good morning. Can you hear me? 
It's very strange to wear this thing. Uh, thank you so much for being here this morning. I'm going to let our uh, session organizers know we're getting a bit of a late start, so we'll be finishing closer to 10 o'clock. Um, we're going to have a conversation this morning about incarceration and public history. We're going to be talking explicitly about the American legacy of racial oppression and about sexual violence. I just want to put everyone in the frame of mind to have this conversation before we get started. We're using first names here on stage. Um, we're going to open with readings from our two authors, beginning with uh, Talitha LaFloria, reading from her book, uh, Chained in Silence. Talitha. Okay. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Um, it's an honor and a pleasure to uh, join you in this critical dialogue about incarceration, um, about the legacies of slavery, about truth-telling, about social justice, and the role history organizations can play in the movement to support formerly incarcerated people. So I want to open with a passage from my book where I tell the story of a young woman named Carrie Massey who was wrongfully convicted of murder in 1882 and sentenced to life in prison. At the rising Fawn prison mine, tucked away in the foothills of Dade County, Carrie Massey, a quote 16-year-old Negro girl, built her home in the depths of despair. The young woman's ordeal began in 1882 when she was convicted of murdering William Evans, a well-known owner of a general store in the town of Summerfield near Macon, Georgia. On the night of the killing, Bill Karstarfin, a black man, heard groans emanating from the shop. He roused the neighborhood and convened a small posse to guard the store. When members of the crowd forced the door open, a ghastly sight met their view. Mr. Evans was lying on a bed in the rear of the building. His head was, quote, crushed in as if by several blows of an ax and the bedclothes fearfully saturated with his blood. The crowd combed every corner of the store looking for Evans' assailant. Carrie Massey was reportedly, quote, hid away beside a pile of shucks. She was pulled out of her hiding place and her apron and bonnet were found to be spotted with blood. Sheriff Walcott escorted Massey to the county jail where a reporter was standing by to collect a statement from the 16-year-old girl about the murder. What made you kill him? Asked the journalist. I didn't kill him. I don't know nothing about it. I ain't killed nobody replied Massey. Massey's declarations of innocence fell on deaf ears. Recognizing the hopeless nature of her circumstances, she challenged authorities to quote, just do with me what you please, I don't care. Notwithstanding the fact that prior to her indictment, she had never been accused, let alone convicted of committing or conspiring to commit any act of violence. The young woman was forced to exchange her blood-stained dress for a striped one and to toil in Georgia's ruthless convict lease system. Massey was barely settled in at the rising fawn furnace before she was forced to ride the blind mule. After disobeying the whipping boss, a rope was tied around her wrists, then threaded into a pulley. 
Next, she was hoisted into the air until her toes barely touched the ground with the weight of her sagging body bearing down on her wrists. For six hours, she remained in the same position. In 1882, Massey was condemned to serve a life term in the Georgia State Penitentiary, where she spent the first years of her sentence trapped in the wash house of the Rising Fawn prison mine. From daybreak to day's end, she scoured or kicked uniforms and hung acres of laundry out to dry. At nightfall, the teenage girl retreated to the women's barrack. Therein, she draped her cotton and husk-filled mattress with her wilted body and nursed her sore knuckles. Narrowly chambered by the splintered walls and ceilings of the wooden stockade, she was unguarded against blustery winds, oozing rainfall, and sexual predators that sometimes invaded the women's quarters. So it looks like I'm missing <laughs> the end of Massey's story, but I'll tell you um, what her end was. In 1892, Massey was sent to the Camp, Pri uh, Camp Herdmont Prison Plantation where all of the women uh, who were incarcerated, all the women who were incarcerated in the state of Georgia, particularly felonies, uh, those who were incarcerated and convicted of felonies were sent to the Camp Herdmont Prison Plantation in 1892. And there was a white man named William Maddox who was given control over um, all of these women. And at this plantation, women were forced to work as lumberjacks and to work in the fields. And one woman was forced to work as a blacksmith. And Carrie Massey, um, in this space, you know, she was forced to work as a domestic. Well, in 1895, after 13 years of incarceration, Carrie Massey uh, gave birth to her fourth child in custody. She had been repeatedly raped, and when she gave birth to her fourth child, um, she developed pupil sepsis, which is also referred to as childbed fever, um, and she ended up dying. Two days later, her newborn died of starvation from not being able to get her milk, and both of their bodies were sent for uh, autopsy. Um, and they were dissected, and that is when it was discovered, um, you know, how they died. And so I share the story of Carrie Massey because in many ways it shows um, the atrocities that women experienced in the past, but those atrocities carry on to the present, and um, Susan will share more about, about that. Okay. Right. Thank you, Talika. Um, Susan Burton reading from her book, Incoming Miss Burton. Good morning. I just want to say I'm really, really thankful um, to be here. Um, 25 years ago, I never imagined myself here. So I just want to add some context um, to. Lift that a little bit. I think it might need to be a little closer. Oh. Yeah, we're getting a little feedback. How's that? Well, better. Yeah. <laughs> so it's 1981. My five year old son, KK, 
I picked him up from school, was in the house cooking dinner. He was outside playing, and he was killed. He was accidentally ran over by an LAPD detective. Uh, at that moment, my world just spun and fell apart. I began to drink. I drank alcoholically. I drank to drown the grief. The only way I know that it was an LAPD officer is Yeah. All right. Um, you read it. You read it in the newspaper. Yeah, I read in the newspaper uh, the name of the officer that it that it ran over my son. They never acknowledged anything. They never said I'm sorry. They never, 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 never. And you know, between rage and grief, I drank. And it escalated to drug use. And for the drug use, I was incarcerated. I was in. I was incarcerated not one time, six different times for drug use. So this is a story of, uh, in chapter 11 in my book, that talks about the treatment while being incarcerated. I was delivered to my cell. The war on drugs was in full force. Jail capacity levels were disregarded and each cell outfitted with bunk beds now had an additional mattress on the floor. Behind me, a lever turned and a heavy steel door clanked shut. I turned the lever inside of me too, sealing off my thoughts from my feelings. One of the things I was allowed to do was crochet and I made a blanket for everybody, one for my mother, one for Tony, once for my nieces, it, it was also my way of trying to provide some reminder of my existence in my family. A couple of months later, I was awoken at 3 a.m. with a pull on my leg. Susan Burton, get up. Visions came to me of my African ancestors bound and dragged into slave ships. I was deposited in a little cattle room in order to strip, the flashlight was back, making its body leak search. I was given a plastic bag and dumping from it were my clothes I'd been wearing when I was arrested. Crumpled in a heap on the floor was my jazzy Neiman Marcus outfit. I stared at the remnants of my former life. I had shoplifted that outfit as I thought I could dress up the pain. If I look good from the outside, it might distract how mangled everything was on the inside. A sadness washed over me. Then I felt the pangs of anger. But you couldn't get angry or sad in jail because you had no recourse. There was nowhere to put it. You couldn't talk to anyone about it or shout about it or eat it back or walk it off or punched the air. So I silently picked up the dirty wrinkled clothes and put them on, as did other women in the corral. Around the waist 
and around the foot, the other woman and I were chained together and led to a shuffling, clanging line to a black and white bus. The more experienced ones among us knew exactly where we were going as they had traveled, as we traveled an hour east, they knew exactly the difference between county jail and state prison. The gates of the California Institution for Women opened and the bus drove past barbed wire and gun towers. This would be my home for the next 13 months. Our chain gang was ordered inside and we were called off by our county numbers and then assigned a new state number, beginning with, the, with a W for women's criminal conviction. Orange uniforms were doled out, branded across the chest and down the pant leg, property of the state of California. Plastic bags came around holding more of our property. There was my purse and its contents, car keys, house keys, my beeper, if you wanted your belongings sent somewhere, you had to pay for the postage. Though George had added money to my jail account, which was supposed to follow me here, it had to last a while. I waited to be clapped while it had to, it had to last while I waited to be classified, which could take some time. Did I want to spend money on postage when I also needed money for essentials like soap, so I didn't have to use the yellow like lye soap? stuff that they gave you, that gave you alligator skin, or real toothpaste to avoid the gritty tooth powder, or a comb that worked on black hair, or sanitary pads. I told the guards, there's nowhere to send it to. Then it's going to be destroyed. I just nodded. Along with the busload of women I came in with, I entered the prison the same way I would. The, the same way I would, I hoped, I hoped to go out through what's called reception and release center. Reception sounded like a nice civilized, uh, nice and civilized, but really it was a form of quarantine. For six weeks, I waited in R&R to be classified and work and assigned work detail. Separate from the main prison, I was confined to a small room with two bunk beds, a steel desk bolted to the wall, and a round stool bolted to the floor, a small sink, and a toilet right in the open with no walls around it. You and your bunkie got to know each other really well. The room, remained the, the room door remained locked except at meals, when it was electronically opened with a loud pop. As each door popped down the corridor, it sounded like machine gun fire. This was the only time we were allowed to leave the room, to walk down the courier, corridor to a chow hall. But we weren't allowed to talk in the chow hall. You opened your mouth only to put food into it. The only sound was the clanging of spoons against the trays. Um, and that's out of the Incarceration Nation um, uh, chapter in the book. But July 17th in um, Los Angeles, the LA Times came out with an article uh, about the way in which women were being treated in the local jail. 
and I want to read you a couple of chapters, I mean a couple of paragraphs from that article. Uh, and it just coincides with the way um, I was treated 40 years ago and then the way ancestors were treated 400 years ago. The women were ordered to line up outside, outdoors, strip and toss their clothes onto the concrete in front of them. Beneath their bare feet, oil from the buses that regularly idled in the same spot mingled with the blood left by the previous wave of female prisoners. Guards cursed, barked commands, made food jokes about the older, snickered at the naked bodies. They ordered the women to stand so close that their shoulders touched. They ordered them to use their fingers to separate their gums and their lips so that their mouths could be searched. And then without offering them any chance to wash first, use their hands to spread their buttocks and their vaginas. They ordered them to bend over, cough as the guards examined their body ca cavities with flashlights. If they were menstruating, the women were ordered to remove their pads, tampons, as blood ran to their feet. They stumbled, onto they stumbled into one another as they spread their toes to be inspected. They shivered in the cold night air and sometimes the rain. Some cried, facing them, watching them. They could see one another. They could see another line of naked women undergoing the same ordeal. Both lines were visible to workers, male and female alike, though a chain link fence alternately covered and uncovered them by a tattered tarp that blew in the wind. Wave after wave of women were bust in and strip searched in this matter. This is not a concentration camp or a high security military prison. It was the regional, the, it was the Century Regional Detention Center, the women's unit of the Los Angeles County Jail in Linwood. So when the, I got this article and I read it, um, it felt like, it, it was like pain began to ooze all out of my body as a reminder of what had taken place so many times before and the, the pain and the, the great, the memory of the degrading experience just kind of just grabbed me. And, you know, you think about what you can do. I did call my therapist to go back into therapy uh, because I thought it was gone. I thought I, I thought I'd healed it and yeah. this just like opened it back up. Uh, but I ended up going to the store to Target and buying about 70 pair of panties and distributing the panties all across the houses to the women that we housed. It was my, like, my only attempt to think about what I can do because for women, panties is a sense, a piece of protection. And um, so, yeah, the thoughts and the memories of what happens to you in those places. 
yeah, that sound like the that sound like the doors opening when they would open <laughs> <laughs> when they would when they would open it for lunch for you to come out yourself and every day, right? <laughs> yeah, so um yeah, it leaves you a bit scarred yeah. and harmed. Um in a way that it's hard to really you know, describe or yeah, but yeah. that's the best description I can get. So, <coughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, <coughs> Let me take the question just slightly out of order that we've talked about because uh, the lead-in is so obvious. Um, Talitha, in your work, you show how, in essence, slavery continued through the penal system um, through the penal system after emancipation. And Susan, in your book, you write powerfully, as we've just heard, about the obvious connections between your experiences and those of your ancestors, and right up until that article, which to be clear was written this past summer. July 17th. Um, can you discuss the, the historical relationship between slavery and mass incarceration, please, for us here? Sure, um, I'll start by saying that, um, you know, this year we are commemorating 400 years since the beginning of slavery in North America, and while it's, I think it's very important that we commemorate the beginnings of slavery, um, I think it's also important that we um, acknowledge the fact that in some ways slavery never ended. It evolved. And for me, um, as a scholar who you know, studies the legacies of slavery, for me, I believe mass incarceration is the legacy of slavery. When you look at the composition of you know, our prison system, uh, the racial composition in particular, it's hard to deny that mass incarceration is a lineal descendant of slavery. You know, the United States only houses, it houses 5% of the world's population, but incarcerates 25% of the world's population. And those same numbers actually apply um, to women. And according to a recent report that was um, uh, produced by the Vera Institute, um, it indicated that 13% of the U.S. population is comprised of black women, but black women make up over 30% of the prison population and 44% of the jail population today. So um, these racial disparities that we see are not a matter of coincidence, um, and mass incarceration is not a new phenomenon, but it's a continuation of um, practices that have been with us since slavery. And its foundation, you know, is, is racism, which is also the foundation of our system of mass incarceration um, today. So there are direct links and ties. As someone who studies convict leasing and studies the long history of mass incarceration, there is a direct line that runs from plantations through prison camps to, you know, the modern-day uh, penal system. And so um, we can, you know, unpack a little bit more about you know some of the, I can unpack some of the experiences that you know women have, have had in the past and how they apply uh, to the present. But the reality is that the features of our modern criminal justice system, uh, our injustice system, are very parallel to slavery. When we think about family separation, think about the stripping you know of uh, rights to to citizenship. Um, and all of the violence, right, that make that makes you know the system of mass incarceration, or or excuse me, that 
helps define the system of mass incarceration today. All of that, you know, stems from uh, slavery and the systems of um, incarceration and involuntary servitude that followed it. So I, I often wonder, had I been a white woman, would I have been car incarcerated over and over and over again? Or would I have been offered help? Um, from what I've seen, you know, I went and I got help in a uh, beach community, Santa Monica. I luckily landed there and I saw a different treatment for people with uh, substance, uh, a substance use disorder. I saw that they didn't go to prison. I saw that they got treatment. They were deferred defer to, to, to treatment, to alternatives to incarceration. For the same thing that I was incarcerated for over and over again. So I wonder, you know, had I had white skin, would I have been treated differently? I think so. But when we, when we talk about what, what happens with slavery of being incarcerated, so. I was assigned a job where I made First, I was assigned a job to go to fire camp. And I didn't want to be a firefighter. I, you know, firefighter, firefighting is not in my DNA. <laughs> I wanted to go to cosmetology school to learn a trade that I could practice. But I was assigned to go to fire camp. And if I didn't show up to practice and exercise for fire camp, I had to stay in prison a day longer. So it's forced labor. Um, so I showed up, but I wouldn't pass the physical test. I kind of figured out how I could uh, uh, kind of chrono out. If I didn't pass the physical test, then I wouldn't be shipped to fire camp. So I stayed in there about three months, exercising every day. Didn't miss a day because I didn't want a day added on to my sentence. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't do the, the physical test to pass. So I got reclassified into a job that I was paid eight cents an hour. And uh, I performed that job. And I performed multiple jobs during multiple prison sentences, from, from picking pecans to raising chickens to being a porter to being a teacher's helper, just whatever, wherever they, they, they stick you or they put you. But I never made over eight cents an hour during those, those, those jails, those, those times in jail. What I see now as the uh, founder of a new way of life reentry project, out of the mass incarceration of women, and women are the fastest growing yeah. segment of the prison system now. Uh, I, you know, I see this whole industry that's, that's growing up in, in around placement and taking of women's children. And we've had to hire um, attorneys at A New Way of Life to actually walk women through the process of getting their children back. 
I remember in a movie I saw once, uh, a master was selling a woman's ch child, taking the woman's child and selling her, and you know, slaves had no, no right to their children. They were property. And this woman was saying, master, master, please, please let me have my child. I'll do anything for you, master, I'll do anything. And I watched these women who've been incarcerated, and being incarcerated doesn't mean that you're a bad mom. Right. It means you got caught up at the wrong time, maybe made a mistake, but it doesn't mean that you're a bad mom. And I hear them saying, judge, judge, please give me my baby back. I'll do anything. I'll complete all the classes. I'll go to all the, I'll, I'll do all the requirements. And I've seen them meet all those requirements. And at the end of the day, the judge does not give that baby back. And I've seen this happen over and over again. And I know what it feels like to lose a child, be it by death, be it by by the by the court, uh, so um, the 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 resemblance that I see around slavery and and um, and and the practices today are very 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 similar or connected to the the justice system or the injustice system. Hmm. Um, well, let's keep that thought. Moving along, um, Talitha, we want to talk about gender uh, and incarceration. Talitha, you write that in some places, such as Georgia, women in the convict leasing system were treated much like men, exploited for their labor in the same skilled and unskilled roles as men in the interest of productivity. Um, can you say a little bit more about that, please, for us? Yeah, so um, just building a little bit on the first question about you know the legacy of slavery. Um, obviously, the exploitation of prison labor is a part of that legacy today, but it was also um, something that carried over from slavery immediately after emancipation. So after the Civil War, every single Southern state adopted a system known as convict leasing. And so essentially, when a person was convicted of a felony um, and became you know, basically the property of the state, that individual would be leased to um, a prison, you know, some industrialist, and sent to work in some prison factory or on a plantation. And so there were thousands of black women who were forced to work on chain gangs um, after the Civil War, and there were um, hundreds of black women who were forced to work in convict lease camps. And so in the state of Georgia in particular, because Georgia had the most diverse range of industries than any other southern state after the Civil War, what this meant is that they utilized um, black female prison labor indiscriminately. So just to speak really quickly about you know, the breakdown, black women made up 3% of the prison population of Georgia after the Civil War but they made up 99% of the female prison population. White women made up 0.01% of that population, and there were only three women sent to convict lease camps between 1868 
and 1908 in the state of Georgia. Um, so the disparities, you know, are very clear and obviously carry over um, to today. And so what these women were doing was, you know, backbreaking labor. Some women worked as blacksmiths. Other women worked, as I mentioned before, as lumberjacks. They worked in brickyards. Women, you know, worked in mines. They uh, built railroads. And there was a disregard for their womanhood or femininity because black women weren't seen as as full women or even fully human. Um, incarcerated people, you know, during this period were essentially treated as chattel in the same way that enslaved people were. But the distinction is that these women, unlike enslaved women who were valued, you know, for their reproductive worth because um, the plantation economy replenished itself through, you know, black enslaved women's wombs, after emancipation, there was a shift from conception to conviction as the means by which to grow bound labor forces. And so this marks the beginning of, you know, the stripping of black women of their, you know, maternal rights. It, it happened during slavery and black women did not have entitlements, you know, <coughs> to their children, obviously. But after emancipation, these children have no worth and black women's wombs have no worth. And so what you see is, you know, incarcerated women's children being killed in prison camps because in many ways they're, you know, seen as a deterrent to labor that the women should be producing. And so, um, you know, in many ways, there was a complete disregard, you know, for their, their womanhood and for their, for their humanity. Mm. Thank you. Um, Susan, you've already said quite a bit, but I, I'm curious if you have anything else you'd like to add about the way the mass incarceration policies of the 70s, 80s, and 90s um, impacted women in ways that might have been different than the impacted men, or were they materially the same experience? Um, I know the uh, late 70s, 80s, and 90s, 2000s, women's, the rate of incarceration for women just, you know, just drove a straight, straight up. Uh, to the um, to the growth of over 800 percent, and I mean we uh, did the work that we cut lawns, we built buildings, we did the plumbing, we did the painting, we did all the things that uh, traditionally men do. Um, while um, in the prisons, and the and the prisons are constructed for men; they're not constructed in a way that. Takes gender into into uh, consideration. Uh, so, can you say some more about that? What what can you give us some examples for? So everything is cement. Everything is is cement or steel, and there's very very little light. I remember, I re which men need light too, um, but the <laughs> yeah you know men men deserve some light too. <laughs> <laughs> but the, it was just all the setting was just hard and I mean you have um, a steel um, uh, foundation for the bed a steel steel slab that a, a two inch mattress is put on and and your hip hurts and your back hurts and you turn and you try to be comfortable I remember standing on the toilet on my tippy toes 
just trying to get the, see the light. There was a little sliver of a window way up high and trying to just get some real sunlight or look into the sunlight and just standing there. But uh, the construction of the prisons are harsh and they're constructed by architecture firms that are constructing them to actually punish. I had the opportunity uh, last year to travel all over the world with Frank Geary looking at the okay. architecture. Yeah, uh. looking. There go, there go that door again. <laughs> uh, looking at the architecture and the way in which prisons are built here and in other uh, countries. And uh, it's just totally different. Um, here in America, the prisons are built to punish. In other countries like Sweden, Norway, uh, Lisbon, they're built to rehabilitate and that's what they do. But another thing that I noted that is in most countries the prison population are white. Mm. The majority of the prison population in America is black and brown. So they just have a different thought about the humanity yeah. of the people in their countries and how they want to rehabilitate instead of punish. Let's hope we keep it. Wow. Let's hope we do see some change. And I think, I think, I think we're awakening uh, around all of this. And I think that I, we we are looking differently at what should be what could be done and what should be done. I know I am. Yeah. You're here, so go Yeah. Can you hear me at all? No. Done. If I yell, can you hear me? There you go. There's a long tradition of architects trying to address issues of prisons from behind a drafting table. I'm just, as an aside, gratified that Frank Geary is spending time with someone who's experienced incarceration because if the Eastern State Penitentiary teaches us anything, the architecture is an element, but it's not gonna solve the, the root causes of yeah. these things. But you have to, as Brian Stevenson says, proximity is important, you have to go and actually spend time. Yeah. So I'm gratified that at least Frank Geary's spending some time with someone who's experienced yeah, we incarceration. Had a, we, had a, we had a nice tour. <laughs> <laughs> Private jets and all that, hey. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> this is the way to go. <laughs> um, Let's talk about silences and absences. It's, I'm realizing that it's actually the title of Talitha's book. Um, Talitha, you write that the silence in the historical record about black women in the, in the convict leasing period, you said you had to honor the unknowable and move forward. And Susan, uh, a new way of life seems to be working against system-wide failures to support women coming home from prison. But we see this in so many aspects of justice policy today, discussions and studies and literature so often are centered on men's experiences, men's prisons, men's reentry. Uh, do you discuss how you think these patterns are related? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously,
the silences of the past carry on to the present, um, and it's very deafening. You know, women, as Susan mentioned, are the fastest growing uh, segment of the prison and jail populations, and yet nobody's, you know, in an uproar about it. It's not at the center, you know, of, of our um, national dialogue. Um, the level of attention uh, that's paid to the mass incarceration crisis, which is oftentimes, you know, gendered male, uh, is not paid to women, and there's no um, sense of so sense of national outrage about what really is an epidemic. But it's a silent epidemic, and so you know the silences of the past, unfortunately, you know, are. Um, carrying on to the present, and it's obscuring our ability to see the full picture. Um, in order to address the, the crisis of mass incarceration, we have to look at you know, the complete picture, which includes women. And for some reason, women are just excluded from uh, these conversations or kind of wiped out of the, uh, the picture or, or the, the narrative. Do you have anything to add, Susan? Yeah, well, I wrote my book. I wrote the book about um, my life to reflect the lives of the millions of women across this nation that are um, uh, traveling in and out and in and out of incarceration to bring, hopefully, to put, uh, to put women in the dialogue and, um, you know, we all just do what it is we can to make an impact or to, to inform. Um, when I wrote my book, I, I, I um, printed 11,000 copies, what it, which I call the prison edition, and intentionally went all around the, around the nation uh, doing book talks with women inside of prisons mm. and doing uh, an intentional, you know, environmental scan of what was happening in this nation up front, close and personal with women. And what I saw all across the nation, 40 to 60% of women had recidivated back into incarceration because they had nowhere to go yeah. when they left prisons, they were returned to the same communities, same conditions, and, you know, we know that there are 48,000 uh, discriminatory policies and practices, barriers for people with, with uh, criminal convictions, so if we're not op helping, opening and making ways and opening doors for people to come back in the community to pick up their bed and walk and be able to earn living and, and, and be in, in, in community with us, then they're pushed out into other communities that are dark and dangerous and they return back to incarceration. And I th thought about, you know, in California, we spend $75,000 a year to incarcerate someone. And we can't spend right. 10000 16000 $20,000 on the back end to bring the, a person, be it male, female, back right. into our communities. And I thought about how backwards 
and how um, unproductive and short-sighted that was as not just a community or state, but as a nation. It's happening all over the nation. Mm. Um, as a result, I started thinking about what I could do because, you know, a new way of life's been around 20 years. It's kind of a, a flagship for culturally competent, successful reentry. Our success rates are up in the 90s. I mean, you know, we have really good success. And people have asked me, women have asked me, formerly incarcerated women have asked me to help them start up. And I've um, helped them start places in their respective communities. So. As a result of that tour um, uh, last year, and a couple of, well, it's been about a year and a half I was doing the tours, and you know, I've, I've created a, a training program uh, for safe houses, a national uh, network of, to build a national network of safe houses. And what, what has happened is that we've trained two cohorts Talitha was at one of the trainings. We're going to do something in Virginia, girl. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we be began to open safe houses to support uh, uh, people, women in, in different parts of our country, uh, New Orleans, Chicago. Uh, we actually put one up in Uganda. This is a, not a national but an international problem. We're looking at Kenya. Um, we're, uh, we're, so we're starting to help people to, they, after they take the training, to create safe houses that women in this nation can have places to go. And it's a small effort. Um, 1.9 million women are released from incarceration in this country every year. It's a small effort, but it starts somewhere. Oh, it's inspiring, great. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm Sorry to say we're almost up to the Q&A time, and there's a couple questions we didn't get to. So if unfortunately, we just have a few minutes, but I wanted to make sure to take a minute for some reflections on the legacy of sexual violence, because it impacts these cases so often. So many women who are incarcerated in the United States were victims first. Uh, women of color have been disproportionately victimized by sexual violence. Can you speak about the connections between sexual violence and incarceration, both historically and today? And I'm sorry to say that we are up against our time, so, but I want to make sure we have a, yeah. take a moment for that thought. So what I know is that women's response uh, to trauma is criminalized. I sat down with a woman who's having these different, she's texting sexy pictures and stuff like that, and I'm, I sat down with her and I asked her, I said, were you in a foster system? She said, yes. I said, how many homes did you go to when you were in the foster care system? She said, over 50. I said, were you ever abused in those homes? She said, yes. I said, how did it start? She said, at age seven, that was my first abuse. Uh, I, says, uh, I, I said to her, I'm sorry that happened to you. And um, I said, but we're here to help you. Do you feel safe here? She said, I'm not sure. I said, I hope at some point that you are able to feel safe and that we are able to support you. We've all been through what you've been through and we're here now to help. And um, so this woman 
woman's experience, her response to the trauma of yeah. being placed in a foster home and being abused was criminalized. And so, um, you know, we have to do better. We have to have therapy services. We have to have services. We have to have places that we place children that are safe. We have to, we have to do better. We just have to do better as a country. Yes, ma'am. Well, I think that, um, you know, Susan has done a, a wonderful job of summarizing, you know, the main point, and that is um, we need gender responsive approaches to reform. And um, I personally don't believe that there's hope for the criminal injustice system as it exists. And I believe that the primary solution to reform is decarceration and finding ways to help people and to support people, um, you know, and finding, finding, creating opportunities and ways for, to support people who are uh, traumatized and instead of criminalizing trauma, you know, in this country and incarcerating people as a result of their trauma, you know, finding ways to support and to, to prevent, you know, people from going into the system in the first place. It should be our, our major, our primary pri um, priority. Here, here. Um, we had a couple questions we haven't had time to get to. Uh, one of them was about self-care. I'm sorry we didn't have time to talk about that. Um, Ms. Burton, in particular, had some really interesting thoughts about that. So perhaps uh, later you can share with anyone in the room who's interested in that subject. I know it's a topic that the field talks about a lot. We're on to the questions and answer period. So if you have a question, there are two mics in the in the uh, in the aisles. And while you do that, I have a couple quick announcements. Both of our authors are going to be signing copies of their book in the lobby to the left as you leave the door. Um, we want to recognize the work of Cornelia Swinton. Is she here? Cornelia, is she, are she here today, this morning? Cornelia, uh, at the Johnson House here in, in um, Germantown, here in Philadelphia, established its Center for Social Advocacy in 2015. Um, and I want to encourage you to visit the pop-up session tomorrow. Uh, it's curated by advocates who have joined together with the Johnson House Historic Site and Eastern State Penitentiary, my colleague Green Totten here, uh, to implement strategies developed to lead systemic reforms in our justice system. That's noon tomorrow, noon Friday, tomorrow, at the pop-up session. Um, and both New Way of Life and Eastern State Penitentiary are enthusiastic believers in hiring people who are formerly incarcerated. If you are interested in this subject for your organization, I know that Ms. Burton would be happy to talk to you more about that as would uh, Reem Cotton or Lauren Zell from our staff. Uh, we've had wonderful, some of my, uh, we've had wonderful success with our coworkers um, who can bring that experience to our work and your organization could do the same. Let's go to Q&A. We'll start on this side. That's right. Hello. Omar. Thank you. Thank you so much <clears throat> for organizing this plenary for this organization, for this association to take this topic on is a big, big thing for me. Um, I appreciate it because what it does is allow us to stop folkloricizing slavery and, and stop thinking about it as something that just ha happened sometime long ago and why are we still talking about it? And for you all to be able to create that continuum so clearly on the stage, I just want to thank you so much, uh, Ms. Burton, Dr. LaFloria, and Mr. Kelly my buddy, um, for, for bringing that to the forefront. 
I also wonder a couple of things. I wonder <clears throat> about the work of like Dr. Joy DeGroy, who, who, who put forth um, scholarship on post-traumatic slave syndrome, and I, how that also speaks to sort of the continuing impact and le of, uh, of the legacy of enslavement. Um, so I wonder if you all have thought about that um, in your experience, you know, Ms. Brown and Dr. LaFlory in your scholarship, have you thought about that? I'm, I'm sure we have, we sort of spoke to it already, but if, if there was any more thoughts about, about that, especially as it pertains to gender, because when I, when I hear Dr. DeGroy speak about it, I don't always hear her speak about it in ge being gender specific. Um, and I would imagine there's another layer to, to that type of trauma when you're, when you're um, putting, when you're intersecting race and gender. And lastly, if you all could just speak to us. You have a captive audience here of historians um, who are seeking to tell the truth and seeking to help people understand how to see humanity and one another better. So if you have any pointers for us, we're all ears. Thank you. Mm. So um, I'd like to respond to uh, the second question because truth-telling, as we know, is, is extremely important. And I understand that you know historical organizations um, are struggling with this this very issue, um, but I think that we cannot you know move forward, um, not just organizationally, but as a nation, until we tell the truth about our past and confront our present. You know, because the past is the present, and the present is the past. You know, in many ways. Um, but I think that we need to tell more inclusive stories and, and incorporate more inclusive histories that address the legacies of slavery, not just slavery, but the legacies including, you know, incarceration, including um, the systems of incarceration that evolved immediately after slavery and the system of mass incarceration that evolved from, from that. So. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but um, we do definitely need to move in the direction of telling a truthful and complete story of, um, you know, the history of slavery and, and its legacies. And do you have anything yeah, to add? No, I, okay. I think we, we have a We have a, a few the three of us in, in preparation for this did spend a lot of time talking about encouraging I'm sure all of us are doing this at our sites, but it, it's, you can always do more to think about whose story is being told and whose story is not being told, and who made that decision. When was that decision made? When was it made? Who made it? And what story isn't being told, and, and who would be the right person to help tell that story at your site? Um, yes, please. Hi. Uh, I'm Paul Caputo. I'm with the National Association for Interpretation. Uh, first, I just wanted to say thank you for your courage in, in telling these stories. It's been fascinating. Um, as I've been sitting here listening, I've been thinking about the, the sad sort of divisive state of public discourse these days, and I've been wondering what sort of uh, reaction you've received from telling these stories. Has, has, it, has there been pushback? Has there been resistance? Uh, or have, have they been welcomed? So that's interesting for me because I used to have to go into the room and just make all these arguments and, you know, like just stand my ground and stand strong and just, you know, put it, you know, make the case. After I wrote the book, I'd show up for the argument and there was no argument there. <laughs> <laughs> 
Everyone got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, there is no pushback. I think when we really tell the truth, the truth is the truth. Yeah. Yes, and, yes, and, yes. And, and it's strong. Right. So um, um, what has happened, I got more invitations than I can take, yeah. than I can, than I can uh, uh, show up for. Anything to add, please? Yeah. yeah, so, um, you know, I don't get very much pushback about my research, and if I did, I don't even notice it because I don't care. The truth <laughs> is the truth, <laughs> um, and the truth will set you free, and if it makes you uncomfortable, that's a really good thing, right? And most people are very uncomfortable with the history and with the stories that we tell, but that's part of the reason why the stories haven't been told, is because people haven't been courageous enough you know, to tell those stories, whether it's, you know, one's individual story, like Susan's story, or like for me, who excavates the stories of the past, you know, in order to, to um, inform the public about the history of black women incarceration in this country. So um, I really, you know, don't experience it, but if I do, I'm ready for it. So it's all good. I would just add that when we built the exhibit prisons today, up until about a year in advance of it, we were going to do the classic museum thing to say on the one hand, but then on the other. Um, and one of our advisors very wisely called us out, took someone from outside the museum field to say what a disservice that is and how patronizing that is to claim there's an argument for and against the mass incarceration policies right. of the 70s, 80s, 90s. They're a disaster and everyone knows right. it. And so we bucked ourselves up. Our board of directors felt phenomenal and we said we're just going to say that this isn't working. The promise of safer communities hasn't been delivered and uh, a lot can be debated about why those policies were passed, but let's agree that they were a disaster, and let's talk about what's next. And we got ourselves ready for this criticism that never came. No one has ever, in any meaningful way, pushed back against that. It makes me wonder if we should have gone further. Um, but anyway, that's a whole other another story. Thank you very much for your comment. Yes, on this side. So I had a question. I know as history organizations, we tend to play the long game, and we're used to doing that. You know, we do programs for fourth graders, we get people talking, hoping that that starts a catalyst and something changes. But I know also as an individual, the question that kept coming up for me was, and I guess it's kind of more geared towards Ms. Burton, is what can we do as history organizations to play a role in the people's lives who have already been affected by that. In my head, it kind of goes to maybe there's something with that re-entry into the community where we can play a space for the people who are actually directly affected by mass incarceration. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts on kind of how we can do something right now, tomorrow, that will make a difference in these women's lives. Yeah, so there are, um, there are so many things that I think that we can all be doing, and um, if it's if it's supporting reentry in your local in your local uh, communities, if it's creating spaces, if it's if it's giving a job, yeah. if it's uh, supplying um, uh, supplies to people that need, there are just so many things that we can all be doing, and I I think each of us individually or collectively uh, in groups know what those things are. And it's not, there is a long game, but it's urgent that people receive 
the hand up and out of the 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 harms and the 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 the, the hopelessness of recidivation of, of recidivate yeah recidivating recidivating and finding uh, a place in the community where they can be contributing members yes. of our society. Yes. You know, I think we all want to be the best that we can be. Um, I remember someone telling me to pull myself up by my boots, oh. but I was barefoot. <laughs> so, but I wanted to do, and I wanted to have boots. Uh, so I think there's all, there's things that we can all be doing um, uh, individually and collectively to, to reduce, to, to, tur to turn back mass incarceration. And, and, and it's going to have to happen in our local communities. Yes. It's going to have to happen by me and by you uh, to um, do what's needed to, to make the, be a part of that change. Thank you for your Thank question. You. I, I just want to underscore that hiring someone coming out of prison is a great place to start. And to think about who tells the stories uh, in your sites, that there's a, a place for many perspectives. And just to underscore yeah. what Ms. Burton said about urgency, that we do play the long game. But with issues like this, there are each generation gets one or two of these. This is our, I believe this is our generation challenge. I mean, we have many. but. If you got to pick one, uh, mass incarceration um, it would not be the worst one to start. We have and, and, and I just want to say hiring formerly incarcerated people. I remember how grateful I was when um, I would come and, and, and help this older woman to stay in her home. And I would walk in the door and she'd be so happy to see me. And I'd be so happy to see her. And I felt like my life was useful and purposeful. And now I hire people and I see how eager they are uh, to show up and to come to work and be that person that, that uh, is accountable and, and gets a paycheck and, 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 and performs and, and works hard, stays late and all of that, comes early. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I think we have time for one more very quick question. So we'll do a quick question, please, and we'll try to give a quick response, and we're going to have to call it a morning. Yes, please. Um, hello, I'm Diane Gutenkauf. I represent Cell Block 7, Michigan's Prison Museum. And unfortunately, it's a complicated question. I hope I can narrow it down. Because you, there's so many issues here from adverse childhood experiences to ban the box. One thing you haven't really touched on is the uh, issue of for-profit prisons. And I wonder if you might, we're wrestling with this at our site, comment briefly on how this issue of for-profit prisons versus state-run prisons particularly affects women. I'm going to say one sentence and then turn it over to Ms. Burton, who's our real expert here. Um, it's the public, in our experience, often misunderstands private prisons and thinks there are more of them. They're mostly in the federal prison. However, there are massive industries that are embedded into what appear to be state-run, what are state-run prisons, but so much of the activity in state and federal and county prisons have been farmed out to these industries that whose financial interest is based on keeping those beds filled. And so you don't look at that and say that's a private prison, but it's actually, if there's a, pri a profit motive in this, I think it's often expressed not in the private prisons, but in these massive industries, you pull into a prison parking lot and just look at all of the contractors and vending companies and 
all the trucks that are lined up in the parking lot with employees in and out of those buildings. But we have a real expert here with Ms. Burton who's been on the other side of that. Do you want to say anything else about? You coined it. So you can go private, you can go state, you can go federal. They all profit from our pain. That's it, folks. Thank you for being here this morning.